Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer, give you the opportunity to make sure you are spiritually prepared to study the Word this evening and to focus on uh, what God the Holy Spirit has to teach each of us. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can come together to fellowship around the teaching of your word, to be refreshed by your word, to be reminded that you are indeed the sovereign God of the universe and that just as you oversee the details of history and the outworking of your plan in history, you also oversee the outworking of your plan in our lives. And thus, the things that occur in our lives are not just pure chance or pure happenstance, but that that you sovereignly oversee all of the details, the good and the bad, the testing, the adversity, as well as prosperity, and everything you orchestrate for the purpose of giving us the opportunity to apply your word and to grow and mature as believers, that in our maturity we might glorify you and that we might be prepared for how you will use us in ministry in this life as well as in the kingdom to come. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are in Revelation chapter 18. And we have been studying the destruction of Babylon that is covered in Revelation chapters 17 and 18. These two chapters go together looking at the destruction of the city of Babylon uh, is from uh, just two slightly different perspectives, but it's the same city, same destruction. We've looked at the history of Babylon. Here's a timeline, a little graphic to put it together. Babylon first comes into history at the Tower of Babel. It is the perfect depiction. It is a literal city, literal kingdom out of the Tower of Babel. You have the real uh, beginnings of the kingdom of man and uh, human, uh, the assertion of human autonomy beginning to be truly systematized and the promotion of, a, of various religions that stand against God. Babylon has a key role throughout the history of Israel, as the uh, opponent to Israel, as a nation that is uh, hostile to Israel. And, of course, it is the Babylonians who destroyed the first temple in 586 B.C. And the the southern kingdom goes out into, into captivity. Then, as we look forward to the future, at the end of the church age after the rapture during the time of the tribulation there is a rebuilding of Babylon now how much of that occurs before the rapture how much occurs between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation we don't know what we do see is that there is an uh, a, a centrality to Babylon 
that comes to be in the in the tribulation period. And Babylon is related to uh, its own kingdom and is distinct which is distinct from the antichrist initial kingdom which comes out of the old Roman empire. Now the reason I'm making that point is because of a question I got um, this last a week over what we've studied the last several weeks. I'm going to go ahead and finish this timeline before uh, going on. There's the seven years of the tribulation period ending with the destruction of Babylon and the second coming and the rule of the kingdom of man ends and God establishes his kingdom. The question that was asked is this. If Babylon is the economic heart of the Antichrist kingdom, why does he want to destroy his economic headquarters in the Middle East? And that flows out of the, out of the point that I made last time, that there's a distinction, it seems, between the kings of the East who have committed immorality with, the, with Babylon and who lament the destruction of Babylon and the ten horns that are on the beast, the woman rides the beast, and this beast has ten horns representing the ten kings that are the core of the kingdom of the Antichrist. So we have to uh, make a distinction, and as part of the answer, we have to remember that Babylon is not a part of that original uh, empire made up of the ten horns plus one, which is the little horn of Daniel chapter 7, which is the Antichrist. So Babylon is not part of that original empire. Babylon was never part of the old Roman Empire. That The last kingdom is a revival of the old Roman Empire. So it's, we, that's why we refer to it as the revived Roman Empire. Babylon is secondary. What happens in the first half of the tribulation is the Antichrist establish a hegemony, which means a political control over various other uh, entities. He establishes a, a, a hegemony over the world so that he indeed by the midpoint of the tribulation period becomes a world ruler, a world dictator. And so that includes his original empire, of those uh, ten kings plus himself, the eleven, which would make eleven, and then other other entities, other empire entities, of which Babylon seems to be one, and Babylon seems to be like uh, Wall Street in that this is an economic center, but it is not necessarily... Um, part of his original empire there is a there is, seems to be some sort of tension that develops between the 10 kings that are part of his original empire and uh and Babylon and Babylon is depicted as the uh woman who rides uh, the beast and the beast is, has the 10 horns so there's uh, an issue of control there and that control is primarily related to a religious and philosophical and perhaps an economic tyranny that becomes overbearing, uh, tyrannical in a, sen- in a sense, to the ten kings. And so they really want to get rid of that influence of Babylon. How that looks, I'm not sure. So what we see in this in Revelation is that the kings of the earth are a different group 
than the ten horns or ten kings that are part of the uh, revived Roman Empire. Passages such as Revelation 7-2 and, I mean, 17-2 and 17-16 show this distinction. In 17-2, the kings of the earth committed fornication or immorality. They are unfaithful to God. That's the essential meaning of that. They are acting in complete independence and autonomy from God. The kings of the earth commit fornication. And the inhabitants of the earth are made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So there is this intimacy between the kings of the earth and Babylon. In 1716, we read that the ten horns, which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot. So you got one group that the ten hate the harlot, and the other group is making love to the harlot. So they clearly have two different relationships uh, to the woman who rides the beast, and the woman is clearly identified as Babylon. And so the, the group, the uh, Antichrist original kingdom and the Antichrist clearly are, uh, clearly rejoice when Babylon is destroyed. Now, I haven't been clear on that in the past because I haven't had the opportunities I've had the last few weeks to work my way through uh, chapter 17 and 18 in uh, painstaking detail. But that's what happens is as you finally go through passages like this, whatever you taught or you were taught or read in systematic theologies or uh, prophecy, books dealing with prophecy, things of that nature, then suddenly you begin to raise questions and say, well, look at this little detail. And what I've discovered, and I'm not knocking anybody else when I'm doing this, this is just what tends to be a standard procedure in, in many uh, churches and the way one reason why I like to do things a little differently than most churches is the average pastor will teach revelation in maybe 20 or 30 lessons and he never even he's not getting digging de- deeply enough into the text to ever surface any of these issues so most of the time most pastors are simply operating off of whatever they were taught in seminary or they're operating off of two or three commentaries and in many cases, they haven't had enough time and grade really digging into uh, eschatological issues to surface some of these conflicts. And that that's what happens. The more you go through it, the more you begin to see things that perhaps you haven't seen before. And that that's how some of these issues, problems, conflicts, or apparent contradictions ultimately become identified and resolved. So... I'm not exactly sure how this works. What we know for sure is Babylon is literal in the end times. It's a literal city on the Euphrates River. It's not a symbol. It's not a code word for Rome. Uh, We know there's this difference between the kings of the earth and the ten horns or ten kingdoms. This is seen in uh, many of these uh, passages that are... uh, Identified in, in that I've identified in Revelation 17 and in 18, we've, we've seen that the kings of the earth are unfaithful with the great harlot who sits on the waters, 17:1, 17:2, and that the waters on which the great harlot sits are identified as peoples, nations, and tongues in 17:15. So that correlates the kings of the earth with the earth dwellers as some something of a broader category, perhaps, but a distinct category from the Ten Kings, which are seen to be distinctly related to the Antichrist 
and his primary kingdom. So, and then Babylon is said to have a very positive influence over the kings of the earth, but the influence is is resented and resisted by the ten horns, by those ten kings. So when you put all of that together, what we see at the end of the tribulation period when God judges Babylon and judges the, the city and all that's involved, both the economics and the religious political uh, scenario and worldview, the empire of the Antichrist rejoices because now they, they've gotten rid of her tyranny but the kings of the earth and the earth dwellers and the merchants of the earth, all of these groups, lament. They are in tremendous sorrow. Now, just as another side point on this, as we'll see when we get into uh, our first verse here, Revelation 18.20, the command that comes from this angel is to rejoice over her, O heaven, and you, saint, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her, and this word that is translated "rejoice" is a uh, present passive imperative, and it means to celebrate, to rejoice, to be glad or delighted. It's not the normal word that we find for joy, which is "kara," but this is a different verb, and it's the same verb that's used, interestingly enough, in Revelation chapter 11 to describe the big party that the world throws after the two witnesses are are killed by the Antichrist, and their bodies are laid out uh, for all the world to view, and for three days they view those bodies, and the world has this great party, and they give presents to each other. It's like, it's like a worldwide uh, Christmas type of celebration because these two witnesses have been killed. Now, one of the things that, we, that I've developed in looking at the chronology of Revelation, because there are two basic issues that you'll run into whenever you read anybody, is that there's there's debate about whether the trumpet judgments come in either the first half of the tribulation or the second half. That's the main issue. Um, most people see the seals in the first half, bowls in the second half, but where do you put the trumpet judgments? And that's related to where you put the two witnesses. Now, if you put the two witnesses in the second half, which is what a lot of people do, you have a problem because their 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 time of ministry is supposed to be 1,320 days. And 1,320 days is equivalent to three and a half years. And if that three and a half years is the second half, then from the abomination of desolation to the end of the tribulation period, you have the ministry of the of the two witnesses for 1,320 days, which means they would be killed about the time that Jesus returns. And then you, that's when you would have this big party, this big celebration. The problem is that that would be the same time Babylon is destroyed, and the picture that we have in Revelation uh, 18 is that there is lamenting, that there's no partying going on. The world is in a state of, of grief over the destruction of Babylon, not a party scenario over the, the two witnesses. And the other problem with that is it doesn't leave any time for the other judgments to come after the death of the two witnesses if you put them in the second half. So therefore, they must be uh, in the first half, no matter what other areas of uh, confusion there might be. So when we look at the question, then, I think I've resolved that of why, why there's this, why the Antichrist wants uh, Babylon destroyed. I think it's because 
it, Babylon and the economic and religious system has become too tyrannical. And so they rejoice to have thrown that off and gotten rid of it. And this is why the world is gathering for battle at Armageddon. And you have the kings of the east, the Euphrates River dries up. That's the sixth seal or the fifth seal, I mean fifth bowl judgment rather. The Euphrates dries up so the kings of the east can come across. And you see the the whole international kingdom, that the government that the Antichrist has set up is falling apart. And so it's it's him and his original revived Roman Empire against element, other elements in the uh, in the world. So the end has come, as we have seen in chapter eighteen, going up through verse nineteen, and then we have an angel appear with this announcement in verse twenty to rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy. You, you saints and apostles and prophets. Now, some of you who are using a New King James Version, you should note that that translates it a little differently. Uh, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles. In some of the manuscripts, primarily those that were used uh, in the Texas Receptus, which was the manuscript tradition for the King James Version, that and between holy and apostles somehow dropped out. But both the majority text and the critical text include the and. That is in the vast majority of, of, of manuscripts. And so holy is not an adjective for apostles. It is, it should be translated hagios and it should be translated saints, that is believers. So this is a cry to rejoice over the destruction of Babylon. Now that is an, raises an interesting question, which is, is it right or when is it right for believers to rejoice over the destruction of evil and evildoers? And that even raises another question that I've heard people ask every now and then, and that has to do with is it right uh, or is it legitimate for Christians in the church age to have imprecatory prayers? Now, for those of you who don't know what, a, uh, what an imprecatory prayer is, an imprecatory prayer, uh, you find these in, in a few of the Psalms. It is when the psalmist is calling upon God to judge his enemies. And I've heard people say, well, Christians don't have a right to do that. Well, it's not a, number one, I think there's a misunderstanding there. An imprecatory prayer is not a demand for God to do what, to, to bring judgment against the, his enemies. It is a request. It is no different from the request that we've seen in the fifth seal judgment when the martyrs are praying to God to finally avenge their blood. It is a cry for justice to be enacted in the life of a believer when there have been those who are unrighteous and sinful who are attacking and assaulting who are the enemies of that which is righteous and just. And so I don't see any reason why believers cannot call upon God to bring judgment on evil and evildoers. He may say the same, give the same answer he gives to the martyrs in the fifth seal judgment, which is, it's not time yet. Just, just wait. Which is probably what the answer will be in most cases. But since we don't know Always, according to Paul in Romans chapter 8, we don't always know how to pray, and we don't know exactly precisely what to pray for. God the Holy Spirit is the one 
who really energizes our prayers and is sort of a divine translator in getting things, you know, getting everything right. And so I don't see any any distinction between what David is doing in the Psalms when he is calling upon God and his righteousness and justice to execute righteousness and justice in history, and uh, which happens at times in history. God does punish the evil and the evildoers. Uh, he punished the evil in the northern kingdom uh, using the Assyrian, another evil force, to do it. He punished the evil and the evildoers in the southern kingdom. When he used the Babylonians, and it just shocked Habakkuk to no end that God would use these evil, wicked, idolatrous Babylonians to punish the evil, wicked, idolatrous uh, leaders in the southern kingdom of Judah. But God did that. So uh, I think we have to be a little more uh, understanding of what's going on in some of these uh, imprecatory psalms than what uh, some people give, give it credit for. So we do have a right to rejoice over evil and evildoers, especially when we understand how evil, where evil comes from, where sin and evil come from, within the entire angelic conflict. And that is, it's all rebellion against God, and eventually God is going to bring all of that to a final level of judgment, which is what occurs at the end of the tribulation period. And there is a judgment upon the uh, rebels within the angelic forces, those who have been uh, restricted in the abyss under Abaddon, those who have been restricted under the Euphrates River that are released during the uh, fifth fifth uh, trumpet judgment, and he's also going to be uh, and he'll be judging all of the demons and sending uh, uh, Satan binding him in chains at the end of the tribulation and sending the false prophet and the antichrist straight straight to the lake of fire. So there's a judgment of both the evil in the angelic dimension and uh, judgment of the evil and evildoers in the human realm in order to bring to a closure all of the rebellion that has occurred both in the angelic realm and the human realm so that he can then establish his kingdom on the earth, which is exactly what all of this is is moving towards. There has to be a judgment and a purification before that judgment uh, can actually, I mean, before his kingdom can actually uh be established upon the earth. And so now that Babylon has been destroyed, there is the command from the angel, unspecified angel, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. And this word for avenge is a word that relates to bringing judgment, correct justice upon the uh, those who have are responsible for the martyrdom of, of millions of believers during the tribulation, uh, during the tribulation period. And this cry to rejoice over the destruction of Babylon echoes the prophecy that was uh, written by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 51. Uh, 48, where he wrote, then the he- then talking about the time when Babylon would be destroyed, then the heavens and the earth and all that is in them shall sing joyously over Babylon, 
For the plunderer shall come to her from the north, says the Lord. So this is a fulfillment of that prophecy. This is another reason why we have to say that Jeremiah 50 and 51 were not fulfilled in any way prior to the final destruction of Babylon in the end times. The destruction that occurred really gradually over centuries as we studied was was uh, not in any way a fulfillment of the prophecies in Isaiah 13 and 14 or in Jeremiah uh, 51. So the cry goes out to rejoice over the destruction of Babylon. Oh, uh, the holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Then we come to verse 21. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone, and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found any more. So again, this is a uh, statement by the angel that this refers to the final judgment on Babylon, and never again will Babylon be rebuilt. This is what fits with the Old Testament uh, uh, prophecies related to the destruction of Babylon. So the initial phrase, a mighty angel, takes us back to two other instances in the uh, book of Revelation where uh, a mighty angel or a strong angel has appeared. This is uh, just a, seems to be a class of, of angels. Uh, three mighty angels are mentioned, one in Revelation 5.2, where John said, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who's worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And in Revelation 10.11, or 10.1, I saw still another strong angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head, his face like the sun, his feet like pillars of fire. So these strong angels play specific roles in announcing certain judgments that are taking place or certain things that must take place in relationship to the uh, end-time judgment of the tribulation. So this angel announces that uh, or demonstrates, gives a visual demonstration. We have a little role play go on here to make sure people understand uh, what is happening with Babylon and takes this uh, millstone and throws it into the sea. Now, the word that is used here for millstone is a little different from the normal word that is used. This is the Greek word mulinos with an N, M-U-L-I-N-O-S, and the normal word for a millstone is mulikos, which is used in Luke 17.2, and the difference is that it's not talking about a stone that has actually been used as a millstone, but one that it looks like and appears to be like and could be used as a millstone because of its size. Now, there were two different kinds of millstones that were used in the ancient world. There would be a small millstone that would be turned by an individual. Usually the women worked in grinding the uh, and, and crushing the grain, and this would not be very large. And then there was a much larger kind, as I have depicted here in the uh, picture on the screen, 
that would be turned by the use of an, of a, of an animal such as a donkey. And these were usually four to five feet in diameter and they were normally about 12 inches thick and they would weigh several thousand pounds. And so the picture here is of an enormously heavy object that is cast into the sea and would just create an, uh, an enormous uh, impact and uh, tidal wave as a result of that. And this is just used to dramatize the absolute destruction that is going to come upon the great city of Babylon. And then the closing part of the verse says, and Babylon shall not be found anymore. This is the final judgment. There would be nothing left of Babylon, nothing to be restored, and the city would never, ever again exist. So it emphasizes the totality of that destruction. And then to make sure we understand how total and the extent of... Um, of that destruction, we have, let me see, I skipped ahead to, yeah, verse 8, 22 and 23. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters, these were your normal instruments in the orchestras that they had at that time, shall not be heard in you anymore. Now, the English use, has to express that with the use of not plus anymore. In the Greek, what you have is an idiom where the, the Greek uses a double negative plus a subjunctive mood in the, in the verb, which indicates uh, totality. It's the strongest way you can say something. Uh, you might literally translate it that uh, Babylon will not never again. Uh, in English, though, two negatives make a positive, but that's how it's expressed in, in Greek. And it conveys the idea of impossibility or absolute certainty that something would never, ever occur again. And so the first statement that is made is that never again would any kind of music be heard in Babylon. It is just completely and totally destroyed. Second statement applies to workmen, to laborers, to craftsmen. This would include everything from those who were skilled laborers to uh, those who were who were just uh, unskilled laborers. The sound of a millstone would be the work of an unskilled uh, laborer. No craftsman of any craft shall be found in you anymore, and the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. In other words, there will never again be anyone doing any work or any labor in Babylon. And then even further in verse 23, the light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore. And this would refer to even the smallest lamp. Nobody's going to have, there won't even be the small little oil lamps of the most impoverished people. There's no light at all. There is just absolute darkness, darkness often being associated with judgment in the scripture. So there will not be any light anymore. And the voice of the, uh, the voice of the bridegroom, there we go, that, that's the slide. The voice of the bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. So the normal activities of life, marriage and giving of marriage are gone. There's no human activity anymore. There's no, uh, commerce anymore. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by your sorcery, all nations were deceived. Now, this brings in a pretty interesting word in the Greek. It's a word 
that has been brought over into English. It's the Greek word pharmakeia, spelled with a K, P-H-A-R-M-A-K-E-I-A. And this is not the same as what we think of as pharmacy, which is mostly just dealing with uh, with medicinal drugs. But in the ancient world, this word had a primary uh, connotation of dealing with sorcery and magic. It was often using uh, hallucinogenic drugs in association with uh, religious observances. This is the kind of thing that uh, some of the uh, worshipers would use to put themselves in some sort of altered state of consciousness so that they could uh, commune with the gods and the gods could uh, speak w- uh, through them and with them. So it's associated with demonism. It's associated with idolatry. It was present uh, with Jezebel, Second Kings 9.22. The word pharmakeia is used in the Septuagint in the uh, translation of that verse. It's used in uh, relation to Babylon in the uh, Old Testament in Isaiah 47.12, and it's used in relation to Nineveh, which was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, in Nahum 3.4. So it references uh, magic, demonism, sorcery, all of these things. So it indicates uh, the, the true demonic dimension that lies behind all false religion and all false uh, systems of thinking. So Babylon is condemned because her sorcery, that is the kind of thinking, the religious thinking that emanated, that originated with the fall of Babylon in Genesis chapter chapter 11, has permeated, influenced all the peoples of the earth, all the nations of the earth, and has deceived them into uh, rejecting God, rebelling against God. And for this, Babylon is the ultimate source of that religion uh, has been destroyed. And this guilt is further uh, implicated in verse 24, where the angel says, and in her, that is in Babylon, was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who were slain on the earth. This is a direct reference to all of the martyrs that have been killed, murdered during the tribulation period, referencing back to the fifth seal judgment, Revelation 6.10, and they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true? Notice the emphasis there on holiness and truth. We'll see that a similar connection in just a minute. Holy and true until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. That's a call from the prayer from the martyrs for God to judge and to bring judgment upon those who have uh, uh, killed them, executed them, persecuted them, uh, during the first part of the tribulation period, and so there's this 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 is the this is the indictment on Babylon, and the reason that she is destroyed is because of her sorcery, that is her religious uh, deception uh, that involves everything from just religion and philosophy to the use of, of drugs in the process and the destruction and, and murder of the prophets and the saints. Now, the scene then shifts with the beginning of verse 1 in chapter 19. The first phrase after these things 
doesn't mean that necessarily that the events of chapter 19 chronologically follow the events of 18, although that is true in this case. This is how John changes from one scene to another. And so there's, there is just a scene shift here that takes place. And in this scene shift, he shifts from the destruction of Babylon and the interpretation of the destruction of Babylon uh, by this angel to a, another scene, and this one is in heaven. And the first six verses of chapter 19 focus on what I'm calling four plus one hallelujahs. We have four plus one hallelujahs. Now, the reason I say that is because in almost everything, every commentary I looked at, they talk about these four hallelujahs. And in the Greek, you have four hallelujahs. But we have to ask what hallelujah actually means. Now, the uh, four hallelujahs are here, plus one. In 19.1, uh, there's a multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. And then in verse 3, we read again, they said, that is this same group, says, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And then in verse 4, the 24 elders and the four living creatures, which we haven't seen since uh, back in chapter uh, 4 and 5, They fall down and worship God who sat on the throne and say, Amen, Alleluia. Then there's a voice from the throne that says, Praise our God. All you as servants will praise our God. In Hebrew, it's Hallelujah. And in Greek, it's Alleluia. So the others are transliterated. This is a translation. That's why I'm saying this. there's really five Hallelujahs in this uh, section. And then the last one is the transliteration or just the statement, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns in verse 6. Now here on this screen, I've put the, the Greek and the transliteration up for you. The Greek word Hallelujah with the rough breathing mark there would be pronounced the same as the Hebrew phrase I have on the right side, which is Hallelujah. It's two different words. Hallelujah is a P-A-L imperative. It's a second person plural. Y'all praise. Hallel is the Hebrew word for praise. Hallelujah, the U ending is your second person plural ending. It's a command to a group of people calling upon them to praise Yah. Who is, that's the first syllable in Yahweh, the name for God. So praise the Lord is the command. It is not a, de- a declarative statement. Uh, praise the Lord. It is a command. When you say praise the Lord, you should be, it, it, it should be uttered as a command to people, uh, to praise and to praise God for, uh, what he has, uh, for what he has done and what he has accomplished in uh, human history. So chapter 19 begins with this section that focuses on actually five hallelujahs because the statement in verse uh, 5 to praise God is a statement that is a translation of the word hallelujah. So you have four hallelujahs plus one translation, all of which mean the same thing to praise uh, the Lord. Now, there are 
these four occurrences of Alleluia here are the only times that we run into this word in this way in the New Testament. In the Psalms, that phrase hallelujah is used 24 times. And it's interesting to study how that word is used. It's used at the end of five Psalms, Psalm 104, Psalm 105, Psalm 115, 116, and 117. Now, that's significant in, in those particular Psalms, 115, 116, 117. 113 to 118 is called the Hallel Psalms. And it is the singing of the Hallel songs that was common at Passover and at Tabernacles. That's what the disciples and Jesus sang when they, before they went out after they celebrated the Passover that night. They sang the Hallel, which is a praise to God. So that's Psalm 113 to 117. So just keep those numbers in your, in your thinking as I go through this. So you have Hallelujah at the end of Psalm 104, 105, and then 115, 116, and 117, which were all part of the Hallel. It's used at the beginning of Psalm 111 and 112. And it's used, hallelujah, is used at the, the beginning and at the end of Psalm 106, 113, 135, and 146. So it is a call to God's people to praise him. Well, praise him for what? Well, if you examine the context of these psalms, what we discover is all of these psalms are somehow connected to God bringing judgment upon the enemies of Israel. And so the call to praise God from, to Israel is to praise him because God has dis, had victory over his enemies, protected Israel, and destroyed the enemies. So the focus of hallelujah is really a call to praise God because he has protected his people, he has secured salvation for his people, and he has destroyed the enemy of his people. And once again, all of those ideas go back to the essence of what you find in imprecatory prayers is a believer calling upon God to destroy his enemies. So when we get into Psalm 19.1 and we look at these six verses, it sort of gives us a little bit of a different understanding of what is happening now in heaven as this chorus of singing erupts, praising God because Babylon has been destroyed and all the inhabitants of Babylon has been destroyed and all the leaders of Babylon have been destroyed and millions of human beings have been incinerated in the destruction of Babylon because it has now time for God's judgment to be enacted upon the earth. And so we read in 19.1, John saying, After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, or praise God, salvation and glory and honor to the Lord our God. He is the one who provides salvation in delivering from his enemies, delivering from the evil enemies of who have 
uh, controlled human history against him in this great end-time war that has taken place uh, during the tribulation period. And glory, the glory belongs to God because he and he alone can bring victory over sin and evil and honor to him because of what he has done in vindicating his saints and then power because God, is, as omnipotent, is the one who is able to do that. So when we look at this, what is the real basis then for understanding God, what God is doing? It's his character. We have to always start with God's character. People want to start with human experience, and then they come up with some sort of experiential idea of what justice is and what love is and what God's like, and then they read something like this, and how can there be rejoicing in heaven over the slaughter of millions of human beings? And when you start with man and you start with a limited, finite expression of man, then it's easy to see how you can reach those conclusions. But when you start with God as being the one who is absolutely true and righteous, the one who is absolute justice, the one who is love himself, and that the human race and the demons are the the rebels against him, and that he has postponed this judgment for century after century after century so that he can extend his grace to millions and millions of people to give them the opportunity to trust in the message of salvation, whether the Old or New Testament, to come to him and to humble themselves before him, we see a picture of God uh, showing tremendous patience and forbearance towards mankind before they are finally brought to uh, judgment. And those who are judged are those, those who are left are those that under no condition, under no circumstance, would ever, ever trust in Jesus Christ. And there are people like that. And you and I know people like that, that under no set of circumstances are they ever going to respond to the gospel. You can be kind to them. You can be nice to them. You can explain the gospel. You can answer all their questions. And you can do this over and over and over again for dozens of years, and they'll never respond. But you don't know that. I mean, I've had experience, I'm sure you have too, where you have witnessed to people, and maybe after several decades they have finally responded to the gospel. So we don't know how long it's going to take somebody. But God does in his omniscience. And so when we come to the tribulation period, there's that group of earth dwellers that under no condition will ever respond to the gospel. And yet God continues to give them the gospel. Again and again, there's even angels that fly through the heavens announcing the gospel to the earth dwellers. And all it does is confirm them even more in their antagonism and hatred of God. In the next verse, we see that the statement goes on to focus again or continuously on the character of God. For true and righteous are his judgments. The emphasis here is upon his character again, that he is the one who is absolute truth, and he is the one who is absolute righteousness. Righteousness is a reference to the to his character. Righteousness is a reference to the absolute standard of his character, and justice, which is reflected here in his judgments, justice is the outworking of those standards. So the standards begin with truth and righteousness. Those are terms that we frequently associate with integrity. 
And that is why when we sometimes talk about the character of God, I group four attributes together as the integrity of God, his righteousness, which is the standard of his character and his justice and then and his and truth and then the outworking of that in terms of justice and mercy. Justice applies righteousness. Mercy is the application of God's love and grace uh, to people. These four attributes are frequently, or at least three of these four, are frequently combined in different contexts in the Psalms. One of my most favorite verses is Psalm 89.14, which is a meditation on the Davidic covenant, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. And so you see this this direct connection between these four attributes within the character of God. So again, the those in the heavens are praising God because of his character. He is true and he is righteous, and this relates to his ju- ju- judgments. Now, look down just a few verses. Look down to verse 11. Preview of coming attractions next week. Jesus is coming back next Tuesday night. We won't get there tonight, but you can look forward to it. Just before I go to Kiev, we'll have the second coming. John says in verse 11, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was what? Faithful and true. One who sat on him is faithful and true, and in righteousness... He judges and makes war. And so this same, these same titles are applied to Jesus, emphasizing his character as the one who is qualified to bring about this judgment, to implement the judgment of God against all those who have rebelled against him. So back to verse 2, for true and righteous or his judgments. This talks about an absolute standard, an objective standard. And see, when we face issues in life that bring about various uh, perhaps moral or ethical conundrums or people raise issues about uh, Christianity, they're usually starting with a finite reference point. But when we start with the acceptance of the fact that there is an absolute standard of righteousness and truth, then it makes perfect sense. But when you don't start with an absolute standard of righteousness and truth, it doesn't make sense. And so to the unbeliever, this is just all backwards, and it doesn't make sense to him because as far as he's concerned, righteousness and truth are relative concepts, and they're based only upon his experience in which the case there really is no such thing as absolute righteousness and truth, and they just become tools of, and words that are used by politicians and power brokers. But there's no real objective everlasting concept of righteousness and justice embedded in a person as we have in the biblical view of God. And so the Bible sets this view of God completely over against all human concepts of gods, goddesses, and philosophical concepts. They, the multitude cries out for true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. So the corruption that is in the earth is not something that God created in the earth. This solves the problem of suffering. 
God didn't create suffering. He created a perfect world. He created perfect creatures, but he gave those perfect creatures volition, the ability to make choices and to decide, and some of those creatures chose to disobey God, and that is what brought sin and suffering into uh, into the universe. And Babylon is seen here as the source of that corruption, the negative volition tracing back to Nimrod, the founding of Babylon in Genesis chapter uh, chapters 10 and 11, show that it is Babylon and the religion that and philosophical religion that comes out of Babylon in opposition to God that is source the source of corruption of all of the thinking, all of the government systems, all of the economic systems, everything that happens. Uh, within human history. So it is the great harlot who corrupts the earth with her fornication. And that word again doesn't mean a literal sexual immorality. The root meaning for fornication here for uh, porneo has to do with the, uh, the verb is porneo. The noun is uh, uh, pornos and porne. The, the, the root meaning here is infidelity or unfaithfulness to a covenant. And so that covenant is viewed as the creation covenant between God and man. Man was created to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 is the image of God. And so man uh, has rebelled against that, broken that covenant. Babylon asserts a separate destiny, a separate reality, separate religion for man. And so at the very core of the Babylonian Religion or the all human systems of religion, you have this infidelity toward God, and that is what corrupts the earth is unfaithfulness toward God, and the result is that God has avenged on her, and this is a word indicating the bringing of judgment, has avenged on her uh, the blood of his servants shed by her, and so this is the answer to the prayer of the of the martyrs back in uh, Revelation chapter uh, 6 on the fifth seal judgment. And this brings about another response. Uh, again, they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Now, this is an interesting verse that uh, some of you may be thinking, how can her smoke rise up forever and ever? Because in just a couple of uh, uh, weeks, God, Christ establishes his kingdom, and then you're going to have the perfect environment of the millennial kingdom. Uh, how? And then the present heavens and earth are going to be destroyed, and then you go on into eternity. Uh, a couple of different ways to solve that. One would be, one is that often the term forever and ever is used in certain contexts to refer to the end of the, pre- the present age to the end of the present age. So for the term ionos comes from a word that it also means age and could mean just until the end of a present period of time or present dispensation. Is Babylon going to be smoking uh, throughout the millennial kingdom or is Jesus going to hang out a no smoking sign? Uh, Another way of looking at this is that this is actually simply an idiomatic expression for the complete and final destruction of Babylon, that she will never, ever again uh, rise up. And that is also possible. 
there's a lot of debate that goes on over that. It's very clear, though, that this it does at the very least indicate the complete and final destruction of, of Babylon. This is clearly the fulfillment of the prophecy, such as Isaiah 13:19 and 13:20, that Babylon, the jewel of the kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonians' pride, will be overthrown by God, like Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, the destruction of, uh, of Edom, uh, the destruction of uh, some of the other cities mentioned in the Old Testament, uh, like Tyre. Are, are final and complete and are all uh, pictures of this ultimate destruction of Babylon. Isaiah 13:20. she will never be inhabited or lived in through all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherd will rest the flocks there. Final judgment. Then we have in Revelation 19:4 the reintroduction of the 24 elders and the four living creatures. The four living creatures are similar to cherubs and seraphs, two different orders of, of angels. Seraphs have six wings, cherubs have four wings, and there seems to be a distinction here. The four living creatures seem to uh, have elements that are similar to one or the other, but they are a high order of angels associated closely with the throne of God as depicted in the foreground of the picture that's up on the screen. The 24 elders are depicted on each side in the picture that's up on the screen. And as I pointed out when we studied this back in Revelation chapter 5, the 24 elders refer to a group of church-age believers that represent the totality of church-age believers before the throne of God, just as we have uh, congressmen and senators that on good days when everything's going well actually represent us in Washington uh, these are 24 elders that represent the larger mass of uh, the larger mass of church age believers in heaven. It is a representative function. The 24 is uh, similar to the 24 uh, cycles of uh, priests that served before in the uh, temple in the Old Testament, and so these were 24 elders that served on the throne of God and would cycle through various. Uh, various observances throughout uh, eternity. So the 24 elders represent church age, resurrected, raptured, rewarded church age believers, and the four living creatures then are the angels, the highest order of angels closest to the throne of God, and they fall down and they worship God who sat on the throne. This is God the Father. The Son doesn't have a throne yet. He's not given it yet. Uh, This is God the Father, and they worship God the Father saying Amen and Alleluia. And then verse 5, then a voice came from the throne. We're not sure who this is. It's clearly not, um, it's clearly not the voice of the, of the Father. Uh, praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. That wouldn't be God the Father speaking there because it's in, God is in the third person. Uh, we're not sure who it is. It could be the lamb, but the lamb is not usually uh, expressing uh, himself in this way. So maybe it is a, just another angel. Uh, we're just not sure. A voice came from the throne saying, 
Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. Fearing the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and so the fear of the Lord is uh, evident in everyone who is a believer because they have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and all the angels who followed him. And in Revelation 19.6, we have, And I heard, as it were, uh, the voice of a uh, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thunderings. And so, the voice of a great multitude would be like the uh, sound that you would hear from a you know, large gathering of hundreds of thousands of people, just almost a deafening roar. The same with the sound of many waters. If you've ever stood next to a mighty waterfall like Niagara Falls or Victoria Falls or something of that nature, you can barely hear yourself think. And the sound of mighty thunderings. When you've been in a massive thunderstorm where lightning is striking very close, you you can't hear. It is just uh, almost a deafening roar as the multitudes are singing praise to God, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Now this is the verse that inspired Handel when he wrote the, uh, when he was writing uh, the Messiah and the Hallelujah Chorus. That brings us. That brings us now to a close in Revelation uh, 19:6. And next time we'll come back with the remainder of this opening section of 19 before we get into the actual return of the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 11 down to the end uh, end of the chapter. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, we're impressed with your faithfulness with your truth, your righteousness, that you are indeed the God who reigns over the affairs of men. And you are the God who is concerned about establishing righteousness and justice in human history. And yet, in your wisdom, you have postponed the judgment of sin and evil until that comes to fruition in order that all of your purposes might be accomplished and chief among those being the redemption of as many as possible. Father, we pray that we might be mindful of the fact that you are a holy and righteous God and that you do have uh, standards, absolute standards, that you uh, seek to establish in our lives as believers that we might reflect who you are in everything that we do. Father, we thank you for what we studied this evening. We pray that uh, we would be uh, challenged, strengthened, encouraged by our understanding of your word. In Christ's name, amen.